These are the sounds of our world. Thunder, lightning, crashing waves, birds. But our world is changing. We're in the middle of the biggest political and scientific challenge that humanity has ever had to tackle. This climate crisis demands our urgent attention. Now to a dire warning about climate change. According to a new report, experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Climate pioneers have spent decades pleading for action. You all come to us young people for hope. For the green transition away from fossil fuels, while deniers have been holding this development back. But the science is clear. We have to cut our emissions in half before 2030 to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. This podcast series is about that change. The positive and rewarding change that we can all be a part of. The series explores what it takes to actually act on climate change, to go from black to green energy. Over the next five episodes, you'll be presented with stories from people who've done it. You'll understand which carbon reduction targets, we'll call them climate goals going forward, are needed and why. You'll understand the benefits of this transition aren't only just in terms of protecting our climate and why we can only get there with a profound and fast systemic change of our societies, institutions and companies. You'll hear from experts, from people on the ground developing the technology that we need and from strategists that are pushing the climate agenda inside corporations. Welcome to Climate Action Now, a podcast about climate change and solutions. It's created by the world's most sustainable energy company, Orsted, founded in Denmark. Over the past decade, Orsted has undergone a radical transition from black to green energy. My name is Peter Stannis. I'm a journalist and editor and someone who cares deeply about our climate. I'll be your host throughout the series. In today's episode, a sort of prologue to our series, we take stock. We talk to leading Danish climate scientist Sebastian Mernold, lead author of the upcoming 2021 climate report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. We ask him how much of a rush are we actually in? We have wasted decades of time. But first, let's hear from the people who've actually done it, who've gone from causing the problem to being the solution. Over the past 10 years, Orsted has gone from black to green energy, from relying on fossil fuels to being coal-free in 2023. By mid-2019, 82% of the company's energy was generated from renewable sources, including offshore and onshore wind, and by 2025, that figure is going to rise to 99%, making Orsted's energy production virtually carbon neutral. We talked to the senior vice president about what prompted the change. Jakob Bus explained the enormous scale of the transition. Well, I mean, it's been a constant work for 10 years. I mean, you, you, have, uh, you have quite a lot of things to, to work on. So it has been what has consumed all our attention for, for 10 years. We asked him about how they got started. How did they go from being responsible for a third of Denmark's carbon emissions to suddenly deciding to go green? Well, I remember when uh, when Al Gore's movie came out, An Inconvenient Truth. Is it possible that we should prepare against other threats besides terrorists? From Paramount Classics, 
comes a film that has shocked audiences everywhere they've seen it. The Arctic is experiencing faster melting. If this were to go, sea level worldwide would go up 20 feet. In a very pedagogical way, uh, explain sort of what is the problem of, of climate change. And uh, we also had the Stern report come out. Uh, the EU was also setting some long-term targets for 2020 regarding CO2 reduction, build-out of renewable energy, uh, energy efficiency um, uh, improvements. Uh, so, so there were a number of things on the agenda back in 2007 and 2008, which sort of were pointing in the direction something new is happening in a way compared to the reality we, we, we came from. The company decided to change. They set a long-term plan. The idea was to scale its renewable energy production from 15 to 85% of the company's entire production by 2040. I think it's important to understand that we were not making the decision back then to sort of very rapidly change the whole company. What we decided and and the vision we set out for the company back in 2008 was that before 2040 we would change the structure of of the energy production that was sort of a time frame which would give us enough time to to sort of uh, yeah change change the energy mix uh, more fundamentally taking into account the lifetime of uh, the uh, power plants taking into account sort of uh, what 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 is the time it needs to um, we need to build up a new uh, renewable energy infrastructure and so forth so what we were looking into back then was 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 really sort of a 30 year transformation period in which we would gradually shift the energy mix of the company it didn't feel as urgent back in 2007 and 2008 as it did today. Back then, it was more of a, yes, we have a long-term challenge to solve, but it's not like this is something we need sort of to change within the next three years. That was not really sort of the um, the uh, atmosphere back then. I think when you look today, we know now that it is urgent. We have 10 years to basically show that we can put the world on a completely different path. Back then, it was more a question of, yes, we need to make a profound transformation. That was sort of the message from the leading thinkers. Um, but but uh, the urgency, I would say, has come uh, more recently. But then the company's development accelerated. Orsted now stands to meet their 2040 goals by 2020 and produce 99% renewable energy by 2025. So how did that happen? Well, I would say this is, uh, this is something that has come uh, gradually. We have um, seen uh, a couple of, of quite fundamental uh, shifts over the past 10 years, which have really sort of fueled our, uh, the speed of our transformation. We will return to Jakobus but let's first get our facts straight and check in with Sebastian Mernelt about the state of affairs. How bad does it actually look? We caught up with him at his office in Bergen, Norway, where he leads the renowned Nansen Center. The, the temperature is changing globally very fast now compared to earlier. And if we look into like future perspectives, we can see that um, likely the global mean temperature will be four degrees warmer in 2100 compared to present day conditions. 
2015, 197 countries signed on to the Paris Agreement to prevent us ending at a 4-degree temperature increase in 2100. The collective goal is to limit our temperature increase to 2 degrees, preferably only 1.5. But if we, if we follow like the Paris Agreement and we take into account all the reductions from all the member states, member countries, we can see that, that likely the global mean temperature will be 3 degrees warmer compared to present day conditions. And according to the Paris Agreement, we should work towards like 1.5 degree or at least 2.0 degree warming in 2100 compared to present day. So still, still there's like a gap, like a window we need to, we need to figure out how to, how to fulfill this. But at present day conditions and where we are today, we are heading towards a global mean temperature, which is, which likely will be around three degrees Celsius uh, in 2100. We asked Sebastian Mernold how this future will look. It has a lot of like impacts on the natural um, system. Uh, it will change uh, the climate conditions. We expect uh, with a stronger greenhouse effect, we expect uh, a warmer climate, a wetter climate and a more extreme climate in the future. But the main reason is uh, the increasing emission of uh, carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, um, resulting in like uh, an increasing concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the increasing concentration is the main driver uh, towards a, a stronger greenhouse effect. And a stronger greenhouse effect uh, will influence the temperature change in the future changes in precipitation, but also changes uh, in extreme events, both due to frequency, intensity and duration. We cannot precisely predict the curve of temperature rise either, Mernold explains. Yeah, we're talking about in the climate system, we're talking about these feedback loops of feedback events. And uh, like uh, the more we emit due to carbon dioxide and the higher the concentration uh, will become in the atmosphere, uh, the more likely we will trigger uh, those uh, feedback events, meaning that meaning that um, keeping the global mean temperature below two degrees uh, Celsius will likely be very difficult because those uh, impacts from those feedback loops or feedback events will likely uh, accelerate uh, changes in the climate system and especially changes in the temperature globally, but also like regionally uh, where we see or have seen today that the Arctic area uh, is changing two to three times faster compared to the global mean air temperature. It will be likely more difficult to keep the temperature change below two degrees um, in 2100. We're already starting to see the impact of climate change, says Mernold in his office in Bergen. Sea levels are rising due to the intense speed of climate change in the Arctic. It's not exactly news that human behaviour and the emission of carbon dioxide leads to climate change. The scientific community has been talking about this for decades, says Sebastian Mernold. Then it was obvious already back in the late 1800s that an increasing concentration of carbon dioxide resulted in uh, an increasing change or a change in, in, in temperature, right? So the scientific community uh, has known this uh, for many years. But you can say over time you build upon this knowledge and things get like more... You get more knowledge, you get better computer models, you um, 
get longer and better observations. So we understand things better now compared to earlier, right? And we get a better sophisticated understanding about things, about the science behind uh, the main changes uh, in the climate system. As Sebastian Mernold tells us, already in the 1800s, experiments suggested that human-produced carbon dioxide could actually bottle up in the atmosphere. The first idea of the Earth as a greenhouse came as early as the 1820s. But the so-called greenhouse effect only first started to stick around around 40 years later, when Irish scientist John Tyndall starts to understand what kind of gases were most likely to play a role in absorbing sunlight. In the 1930s, British engineer Guy Stewart Callender claimed that the United States and the North Atlantic region had warmed significantly after the Industrial Revolution. In the early 1980s, an increase in global temperatures became apparent. Many experts point to 1988 as a critical turning point, with both record heat, drought and wildfires in the United States. In June of 1988, NASA scientist James Hansen delivered testimony to the American Congress, saying he was 99% sure that global warming was upon us. Sebastian Mernold also points to James Hansen's testimony as a watershed moment. Then I would say that one of the turning points was when James Hansen had a hearing in the US Congress, I think it was in 1988, where he gave evidence for, for the theory uh, behind an increase in concentration of carbon dioxide. And, and this has been one of the turning points, I think, in like, a, in like the society debate. And that, that indicates that over time we have lost uh, many decades of time due to discussing this in the public debate even though that the science is pretty clear uh, on this. And this, is, this has caused that we have wasted a long time, uh, decades of time, by not doing anything, by not doing like making any actions toward diminishing uh, the impact from a changing climate. We are now at a point where radical action is needed within the next 10 years, and Sebastian Mernold remains both hopeful and sceptical. I, I think, uh, honestly, I think that there's like momentum now when you look into the into the policy around. Uh, there's a lot of awareness among politicians that that we need to do something um, to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases uh, to the atmosphere. But still, there's a long way, a long path to go. One thing is awareness. The other thing is that now we need action. Uh, and um, but of course, we need to start one place. So, so I'm hopeful that that the actions, the, the coming actions or the future actions done by the by the politicians, will likely uh, have an, a positive impact on the Paris Agreement. Hopefully, we can stay below two degrees Celsius in 2100. Uh, but that also require uh, political action uh, uh, right now, and uh, we need to do it at a level which uh, haven't been seen uh, so far at all. Uh, so I'm, I'm positive, but at the same time, I'm also like skeptic because um, we have had like now 24 COP meetings every year and uh, only due to four COP meetings, uh, a political agreement was negotiated. And that's just a simple sign for me telling me that it's so complicated also from the political perspective to negotiate like a, a road path for how to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So it's complicated, but I think now we are at a, at a level or we are now at a certain place 
where we can start thinking about what to do and how to do it and how fast we should do it. When Sebastian Mernold refers to the 24 COPs, he's talking about the annual conferences, the Conference of Parties, that were launched after the adoption of the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Currently, 73% of the world's carbon emissions come from the global energy system. That's why it's crucial that the energy industry act and transition away from fossil fuels and towards green energy. And Sebastian Mernold has detected a positive change underway, where energy companies are taking responsibility and going green. Um, so I think that the energy sector has a huge responsibility here. But I also see that, that um, a development is underway. It has been taken um, um, in different countries. Uh, and I think that uh, I think that most people, also in the energy sector, is aware about that uh, that we need to go away from what we call like uh, the black sources, and then have focused on like the green sources, um, uh, wind, solar, and hydropower. Um, so there's a change now in uh, both in in people's mind, but also uh, to some companies. Some companies now are focusing much more on the green path and um, instead of having an eye uh, open for the black path, right? So now we are, I think we are changing perspective towards more renewable energy, which is absolutely the way we should go. So how did an energy company based on oil and gas become the world's largest offshore wind developer? As Jakob Bus explains, it all started in 2008 when the company was called Dong Energy. Then-CEO Anders Eldrup went public with the company's 8515 plan to transform the company's energy production from black to green within a generation. In 2012, Henrik Paulsen took over as CEO and he decided to speed up the green transformation. Orsted increased investment in new offshore wind farms and a target was set to significantly reduce the cost of offshore wind which at the time was much higher than most other energy technologies. Finally, the decision was made to start phasing out coal from the Danish combined heat and power plants and replace coal with sustainable biomass. However, to continue the green transformation, the company needed new equity. The Danish government, being the majority shareholder, sold 18% of the company to the international investment bank Goldman Sachs in 2014. While it generated a lot of public debate, the capital injected from the sale allowed Orsted to continue its significant investments in offshore wind energy. In 2017, the company sold off its oil and gas production and shortly after changed its name from Dong Energy to Orsted. The board of directors felt that the name Dong represented a world based on fossil fuels, which no longer matched the company's energy production, strategy, identity or values. Having successfully transitioned the company from black to green energy faster than any other energy company, Orsted formulated a new vision to create a world that runs entirely on green energy. So to sum up, since 2008, Orsted has built more offshore wind farms than any other company in the world, with offshore wind activities in Denmark, the UK, Germany, the Netherlands, the US and Taiwan. Today, the offshore and onshore wind farms built by Orsted power 13 million people, and it's Orsted's ambition that the number will have increased to more than 50 million people in 2030. 
back to Jakobus. The one thing uh, is, of course, that um, we have uh, managed to uh, bring down the cost of offshore wind much more rapidly than we um, had originally anticipated. Uh, and that has meant uh, that the market demand for offshore wind has been um, has been increasing uh, much more than we had expected. So our build-out of offshore wind has happened much faster than we envisioned back then when we set out sort of the 30-year vision. Um, the second part is that we have been able to convert our um, coal and uh, gas-fired power stations, uh, thereby sort of finding a solution to get the coal out of the energy production much faster than we had anticipated. And that actually means that by 2023, we will be entirely coal-free. So with Ørsted's heavy investment in offshore wind, it became profitable to go green. Green became cheaper than black. When we were looking into sort of the, the demand for offshore wind uh, back in, 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 in 2008 and 2009, we could see, yes, there could potentially be a market, but the need of governments to decarbonize their energy systems has just um, really increased that demand very significantly. So the fact that we have been able to uh, win and build new projects much faster than we had expected back then has obviously driven the, the transformation forward at a much faster pace. The work of transforming the structure, habits and the whole machinery of Ørsted actually ended up changing his perspective on life. I think the fact that I spend every day uh, thinking about a global challenge of the nature of, of climate change, the fact that I know um, the severity of the problem and um, and the significant change it will require globally, uh, that, that makes me uh, humble in, um, in terms of um, we really need to do everything we can to avert what could potentially become a, a, a global catastrophe. And uh, that, uh, that gives a certain focus in, uh, in, in life, you could say. There are some things that are important to spend your time on, and there are other things that are less important to spend your time on. And despite the large global task ahead of us, Jakobus does stay hopeful. I do stay hopeful because I know we have the technological solutions. I know that they are cost efficient. So green energy today is cheaper than black. Uh, we also know what it takes, how much more green energy we need to build out. We also know how much black energy to take out of the global energy system. We know all that. Um, so it's just a matter of, of getting it done. And yes, the world will need to make some decisions at a faster pace than what it's doing today, but it's not like we don't know how to solve this problem. It's not like we don't know what decisions to make. We, are, we know all that, and it's economical. It's rational to do it. And I think when you sort of hold those facts up against what the challenge is for the world, I mean, we risk that, that the global ecosystems and, and the world we live in Will, will be completely different from what we know today, uh, I think it's feasible.
I think it's feasible to make these decisions. Uh, so yes, I'm optimistic, but it will take a lot of hard work. That was it for this introductory episode of our series. Now we know where we stand. And yes, we're in a hurry. But we've also learned that it's both economically and technically possible to transition from black to green. We just need to get to it and do it right. In the next episode, we'll get into which exact climate goals are going to get us where we need to be and why we need to start transitioning right away. We're also going to dive deeper into Orsted's transition. What did the investors and staff and shareholders all think of the top executives when they decided to change the company's entire structure? This podcast was produced by Sophie Thal. It's published by Orsted. And my name is Peter Stannis. <laughs>